Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Estadounidenses viendo el footy. Hoy es un episodio muy especial porque es episodio número 50 y para celebrar vamos a hacer este episodio totalmente en español. ¿Sí, hermano? What? No. No. I, I must have pressed two for Spanish, damn it. Now I gotta go back through the main menu and do the whole thing again. And then I'll remember to press one for English this time. Don't forget to enable Disney Fast Play as well. Yeah, um, Ethan didn't take Spanish. I did. I passed an AP Italian exam and I've lost most of it, but I didn't have to take a language class in college because of it, so good enough. Neither did I, but I've tried to maintain as much as I could, and I should definitely stay strong on that, especially if I'm going to go into teaching like I expect I will, but more on that another time. I am Benjamin Castle. I'm Ethan Castle. And we're not going to fuck around with languages for at least a bit because we've got a heck of a lot to get into in our round 20 recap. Just going to get right into the games because there are a few that warrant a whole lot of attention. It's like that whole Animal Farm thing with like some games are going to be treated more equally than others. All games have their own merit in terms of discussion, but in terms of keeping things as brief as we possibly can while still getting into all the necessary points, we're going to be focusing more on the games that impact the finals race. And one game that is definitely receiving that more than equal treatment from us is the rematch between Fremantle and Melbourne that began this round Friday night at Optus Stadium, Brayshaw Battle Part 2. Angus was moved back to the midfield and was a focus early and often. However, the bigger performer in that midfield and really the driver of Melbourne's energy, their tenacity the whole night through was Jack Viney. With James Aish being tagged on Clayton Oliver, Viney was one of those guys that stepped up, filled in a lot of those holes. Christian Petraka was also talking about how Oliver was taking Aish to spaces so that Viney could capitalize and kind of fill some of those gaps. And uh, safe to say it worked. Because Melbourne kept going as strongly as they had for some of their better performances post by kind of thinking back to how they were against Brisbane, a pressure first, quick to attack team. And I think Angus Brayshaw being moved back to the center helped with that. And Fremantle just struggled to find footing. Yeah, um, Fremantle have had a couple of lousy games. The game at Carlton, the home game against Collingwood come to mind. In Gold Coast. This was a different level of shitting the bed. I mean, this is a team that I've been so high on all year, and they just looked awful. I know you had some bones to pick with their scheme. I just thought they only had a few players show up, and the way they play, you really need everyone dialed in. And really, the only guys that I could look at and say, all right, they did their job, James H., both Michael Frederick and Michael Walters, Griffin Loeb, 
Hayden Young. And if you had told me that both Frederick and Walters would have had good games, I would have thought, all right, the Dockers are going to hold their own elsewhere on the ground and the performance of those two forwards is going to take them over the edge. But there really wasn't much else. They were just bad. This was a game that I turned off and went to sleep after three quarters and didn't regret it. It's not often I willingly make that choice, especially when it's two finals teams. But when it's a 42-point game after three quarters, I think it's more than warranted. And honestly, you didn't miss all that much in the final quarter because it ended up being a 46-point margin. Fremantle 5-9-39, defeated by Melbourne 12-13-85. In terms of my issue with Fremantle's scheme, I just thought they didn't attack the Melbourne zone like we expected, thinking back to the success they had in round 11. They played far too slowly for their own good, and they opted for longer kicks, especially entering their forward 50, and that's not how you play Melbourne. Maybe they were thinking back to some of their success last time, but forgot that Stephen May had been taken out, concussed in the middle of that game, and we saw the impact of the May and Jake Lever tandem in the first half, and that was missing last week. I do want to give the Demons a lot of credit. They did play a damn good game. Obviously, Viney was good. Christian Petraka was his usual self. Without anyone to really man him on the wing, Ed Langdon had a nice game. But there are two guys that I really want to focus on here. James Jordan, who's just been quietly solid, even in some of their recent struggles. And the guy that I thought was the weakest link defensively the week before, Michael Hibbert, ends up racking up 10 intercepts. That's just the kind of game we've come to expect from Melbourne these past couple years for guys to just pick themselves up a week later. Combine that with moving Angus back to the midfield, being matched up against Andrew a couple times, including at the opening bounce, which was really fun. Winning those battles, still being the good mark that he is, but being in a position to make more impactful tackles as well. Everything was coming up red and blue pretty much all night. And even though red and blue make purple, I guess those colors just didn't mix well enough. I'm not exactly sure where I'm taking this. But maybe it's that Fremantle didn't mesh between you know their different units well enough to make things matter. Against Melbourne, you have to have that full team success in order to get over the edge. And they didn't even have full team success. They had, if you're counting just 22 players instead of 18, they had a little under a quarter of the team success. And again, that's not going to cut it. The most tangible effect of Fremantle's schematic issues was that, other than the very last mark of the game, neither Rory Lobb nor Matt Tappener had a single mark inside 50. Tappener has been highlighted by Fremantle fans for not having great form the past couple weeks, if not longer. Fact of the matter is, if either he or Lobb aren't up to snuff, they're going to be struggling. I don't think they were getting to the right spaces to begin with, but the kicks that were going toward them were easy to read, and it was just the type of matchups and zone play in which Melbourne excelled. This is also a type of game where I can definitely feel the impact of not having Sam Switkowski. You know, Michael Frederick does his best running on the wings. Michael Walters may do some good running in the corridor, but having that sort of goal sneak presence with Switkowski might have helped them be able to cut through the zone in a way that they couldn't this past Friday. Meanwhile, going the other way, Melbourne were slicing through Fremantle at ground level pretty much at will, and I'm not talking about Brody, even though he did get a lot of possessions. Did just remember that there was a clear mark for Lobb inside 50 that wasn't paid, and I only remember that because shortly after that, Seven cut to a Fremantle fan doing a shoey. That is the important thing that I missed by sleeping through the fourth quarter. I also want to mention, you know, a week ago had said 
Stephen May really hasn't looked the same since the incident. He looked pretty good in this game. Maybe just took him some time to ramp up. I don't know how much of it's physical, how much of mental, but how much of it is having Lever there with him. We talked a couple rounds ago about how Lever being there, being willing to get in the air has allowed May to do better at ground level in marking contests. And we definitely saw that again here. Having the combination of May, Lever, and Salem, and then you add in Michael Hibbard playing one of his best games, that's a really scary combination. Leading the way in general for Melbourne, including on the statistical front, was Jack Viney. Didn't find a big sticks, only managing it behind, but 33 disposals, gained 523 meters, and had nine score involvements. Christian Petraka right there alongside him, also getting some of those possessions that Clayton Oliver might have had otherwise. 30 touches, 10 score involvements, 8 tackles, 6 clearances, gained 491 meters. Angus Brayshaw with 28 disposals, 9 intercepts, and 564 meters. Good luck figuring out your votes between those three. Ed Langdon with a goal, 23 disposals, and 8 intercepts. Remember, Langdon missed the first matchup between these teams because he had been concussed the previous week. James Jordan, whom you mentioned, with a goal and 20 disposals. And also, Kazi Pickett finished 3-2. I expected the small forwards to be important in this one, and I was surprised that Toby Bedford was omitted and that Kate Chandler was only the medical sub, but Kazi had enough of an impact for sure. On the free mammal side, Will Brody, 35 disposals and 7 clearances. David Mundy who announced that he will be retiring following this season. 35 disposals and 10 clearances. Frankly, despite the good numbers, he is starting to show his age. Andrew Brayshaw, a behind, 30 disposals, 10 marks, 8 tackles. James H, definitely one of those bright spots with 28 disposals, 9 tackles, and 501 meters gained. Hayden Young, 26 disposals. Luke Ryan, 25 disposals, 613 meters gained, but... The Dockers committed 76 turnovers to Melbourne 63 and just constantly played in the Demon's hand. We knew coming in that at least three of Melbourne's final four games, counting this one, would play a huge part in deciding how the top four was going to shape up. It's not completely out of the picture for Fremantle, but it's more than a substantial blow. It magnifies their game against the Bulldogs this next round big time. They do have an easier end to the season with Western Derby 55 and then going to Canberra against the Giants. But if they don't win all three, I doubt that they'll be able to control their destiny in terms of getting a double chance. The Demons currently sit in second, but their place in the top four is nowhere near a sure thing yet, considering they finish with Collingwood, Carlton, and then a trip to the Gabba to take on Brisbane. This was a huge hurdle to clear, but as we'll get into later, really second through sixth, maybe even through seventh on the ladder are still totally up in the air. We think we know the teams that are there, just not the order. <sighs> Anything else on that front? No, you get the next game. That's one that I'm going to be going back and watching. Well, with the way all the results shook down this round, Melbourne were one of the three teams to clinch a place in the finals. Hard to believe that no team had clinched until this round. One of the other teams to clinch, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Collingwood, who end the round in third place after getting away with it once again. I had been hearing that Breaking Bad meme quote thing in my head for weeks regarding them. You can't keep getting away with it! And yeah, they won 10 in a row. They haven't made it look easy all that often in this stretch, but they grinded out a win once again. Collingwood 13-10-88 defeating Port Adelaide 12-10-82, and that's hard to believe considering how this game started and by how it started. Literally the first second, 
because before the opening bounce, Nate Dacos was given a free and 50 against for elbowing Travis Boak in the back. Of course, the Retaliator got the call against him there, and it was just a really soft call, but by the time six seconds had gone off the clock, Port Adelaide scored six points. It was back and forth for the first part of the first quarter after that, with a decent amount of physicality both during and a little after play. But Port Adelaide went on a five-goal run over about a 15-minute real-time stretch. Zach Butters and Charlie Dixon starting off really well. Jack Ginneman giving up a 50 certainly did not help in that regard. It was also part of the game where I wondered about interpretations of pushes in the back, but that's nothing new. Collingwood clearly upped their pressure in the last few minutes of the first quarter and were able to get a couple goals back right at the end. Pies missed their first shot of the second quarter, but I could just tell by the way they were running, the confidence it looked like they had, that they were ready to blow this game open. And they ended up leading at the half by five, a plus 17 point second quarter. It was in the second quarter that there were more questions about free kicks and the treatment of Jack Ginnivan. We've talked about that enough, but if you want to go back and look at certain plays, people are talking about the treatment of him versus Jace Burgoyne, who has been a really fun player to watch for Port Adelaide, the son of Peter Burgoyne, nephew of Sean, looking very polished early on in his career. Honestly, my biggest impressions, though, from the first half were Collingwood fans are loud as fuck. And regardless of how well he's going and what individual plays he makes, Jack Ginnivan is good for footy in general because he's the kind of guy that gets people watching both at home and at venues. Port Adelaide got the first goal of the second half after winning the first center clearance. One of the times I really noticed Darcy Byrne-Jones, who had a really solid game. Nathan Buckley was talking about how Port Adelaide were working best when they were able to get a bit to the outside, working through the first bit of Collingwood's pressure. However, after that point, the Pies pressured enough to stop Port's handball chains early on in the third quarter. And after Port had done so strongly off turnovers to open the game, Collingwood were seizing those opportunities themselves. Trent Bianco with a couple good plays in the mid to late part of the quarter, including a kick that ended up being marked in the goal square by dual American-Australian citizen Mason Cox. He was doing his typical marking over people thing because that's what you do when you're 6'11". Strong play from the Dacos brothers, Gidevin with deft handballing, which is something I hadn't noticed as much with him. Collingwood got the perfect start to the fourth quarter with Jamie Elliott getting free from his defender inside 50 and soccering with 30 seconds gone. But after that, Port were able to dial things back. There were times where I was beginning to notice that Taylor Adams' impact was absent. He had had a groin injury, was subbed out at halftime, and turns out will be missing the rest of the home and away season. Jeremy Howe also was dealing with a right quad issue, so Collingwood were down a rotation. I thought if there's any chance for Port to be able to seize this opportunity and somehow end Collingwood's streak, the time is ripe for them. But then Josh Carmichael said hi, as he has for a couple weeks in a row as a sub, marking in back of Jack Ginnivan from an Ash Johnson kick. Speaking of even more young positives for Collingwood, put them up 87 to 70 with 9.06 remaining. Port got the next goal from Mitch Georgiatis, but Collingwood defensively closed the job late. Nick Dacos and Nathan Murphy stepping up when it mattered, as they have the past few weeks. And even though Jace Burgoyne got the last goal with 61 seconds left, Collingwood were able to survive. Charlie Dixon gave up a hands-in-the-back free and a 50 to Josh Dacos, and that was all she wrote. 
I shouldn't have been surprised that the Pies managed it. I was a little bit at the time that I remember, wait, they easily have the potential to do this all the way to the flag at this point. Because when you expect they're going to falter or somebody's finally going to get the best of them, they're able to close things down late. Both of us have talked about their youth meshing really well with their experience. And this was another game where we were able to see that combined leadership from Scott Pendlebury and Nick Dacos in the back. Steel Sidebottom doing well defensively on the wing, allowing the younger players to fit into their roles more cleanly. I was critical of Collingwood's pressure early, as were a lot of people. But from the late first quarter on, they were able to dial it in. And to add to just the craziness of everything for the Pies this year, they are the first team in VFL slash AFL history to win nine games by 12 points or fewer in a single season. Not a lot of impressive individual stat lines for Collingwood. This was definitely a team effort. Josh Dacos, a behind 26 disposals, 659 meters gained. Jordan Degoe, two goals, a behind 23 disposals, 470 meters and Braden Mannard, 21 disposals, 11 intercepts, 469 meters game. Nice, I guess. I guess. Just underscores then the fact that this was still a team win with so many different pieces contributing all over the field, all over their age spectrum. In terms of big statistical performance for Port Adelaide, Connor Rosie accumulated a lot of possessions again, 35 disposals and 472 meters. The aforementioned Darcy Burke-Jones, 30 disposals and 9 intercepts. Ollie Wines with a solid outing, 30 touches himself, 6 tackles, gained 563 meters. Travis Boak scoring 2-1 from 27 disposals. Carl Amon with one of his better efforts, 1-1 from 26 disposals at 545 meters. Zach Butters couldn't get the team over the line himself, uh, hamburgers. but 2-1 from 25 disposals. Another stronger performance from him. Kane Farrell, 20 disposals, and he's an accurate kick from pretty much anywhere on the field. Didn't get upfield as much as I would have liked, but still gained 538 meters and was a strong tackler. He had six. Tom Jonas, another milestone man playing his 200th game, as was Ollie Wines, with 11 intercepts. One player with maybe not any huge remarkable numbers aside from his two goals, but whose impact was definitely felt, especially the second half, was Sam Powell Pepper. I always watch him for that wow player, too. This time, no one play really stands out to me, but just a solid performer throughout the second half. But I thought back to a comment you made a few weeks back about how Pal Pepper can't be the one player to lift Port from an average side into a finals caliber team. He provided a lot of energy and he can be a barometer for their success, but he can't do that alone. Obviously, statistically, he wasn't alone and Port made good on their trend of losing hitouts handily, minus 29, but turning it around in clearances, they're actually plus eight there. But there was always something missing for them. Kind of representative of their whole season in a lot of ways. While you were watching that, I was watching what I hoped would be a decent game and ended up terrible. It was Sydney Derby 24, and while the first game was compelling most of the way between these two, this one was not. The Swans pulled away starting at the end of the first quarter, then absolutely pounded the Giants into submission. There was a lot of questioning of the effort from GWS up and down the roster, and I think it's fully warranted after this one, a game that Sydney won 17-10, 112 to 5-9-39. A couple of interesting little Sydney Derby facts for you. It's only GWS's fourth lowest score in the 24 meetings, but those other three lower scores, one of them was in 2020 in a 64-minute game instead of an 80-minute game, and the other two were in their very first season. I mean, I really hoped that 
considering there are no finals for the Giants this year, I thought they would have looked at this as, you know, their finals. They would have gone and really given an all-out effort and at least competed. Losing Stephen Canelio before the game to general soreness, as it was called, definitely doesn't help, but it doesn't explain a complete lack of effort. Really, the only two guys who looked like they belonged out there were Toby Green, who finished with a couple of goals, a couple of behinds, and Sam Taylor, who had to fill in the Phil Davis role of tagging Buddy Franklin, and while Buddy did end up getting three goals, a couple of them were off interesting umpiring, and overall, he really held his own against him. In fact, he didn't have a goal until midway through the third quarter. Taylor did his part. Hardly anyone else did. I mean, I guess Nick Haynes was visible, which is better than what we saw out of a lot of these guys. Isaac Cumming just couldn't hold on to the ball. Harry Himmelberg was pushed back to a forward position and didn't do a ton there. Tim Taranto went away as the game went on. Tom Green, you would barely notice he was out there. Braden Bruce was noticed because he would make a couple of really nice plays and then give away a really stupid free kick. And you see why he gets suspended all the time, why he can't maintain a roster spot. And it's frustrating because he has so much talent. He's up there as one of the upper tier Ruckman in this league, at least, you know, on like the level of a Jared Witts. And yet there's reason to delist him every week. Lecolier did not do much in his debut. Hard to fault him. He was getting stitched up before he got his first disposal. And while the effort is certainly the main thing to be questioned from the Giants, I do want to question a couple of tactical things. Mark McVeigh moved Harry Himmelberg more forward this game after he had done pretty well in the back. And instead he had Callum Brown, who probably should be a full forward, maybe to play half forward, playing as halfback. And it didn't work. And it's just a waste of Brown's abilities. He's really fast. He's a really good kick. He's a multi-sport athlete whose skills convert to the offensive side of the game. And it was just playing dumb. You look back at the first two games in which he actually played, the Giants' shock win in round 21 at Cardinia Park last year and round 16 this year against Hawthorne. Brown had that forward time, had that goal sneak roll a few times. He's been kept away from that since, and I just don't get it. I guess you were looking for maybe a more favorable physical matchup against the Swans back, thinking about the McCartan brothers, and Dane Rampey. And Harry Himmelberg can play just about anywhere on the ground. I wouldn't necessarily throw him into ruck contests like McVeigh has been wont to do a couple times, but Callum Brown is not one of those players who is nearly as flexible. I had some really strong doubts about him. Thinking back to last week when he dropped a sitter in the defensive goal square and allowed Josh Honey to score a goal. Yeah, it's just one play, but if you don't have sure hands as a situation like that, it really stands out you got to play him in his natural position. And the fact that this defensive experiment has now lasted multiple weeks is making me really question what Spike is seeing in him. Really a complete team effort from Sydney. Nick Blakey looked good. Tom Papley was all over. Sam Reed had another really nice game. He's not just a guy who takes a forward 50 mark and kicks. The coaching staff has really figured out how to unlock his potential and how to best utilize his abilities. And it's no coincidence that they've won four in a row. Luke Parker won the Brett Kirk medal. Unfortunately, he did not thank Basil afterwards. But he did finish with a behind 34 disposals, seven tackles, and six clearances. Errol Golden, two goals, 33 disposals, 12 marks, 692 meters. Jake Lloyd, 27 disposals and 11 marks. Callum Mills, a goal and 27 disposals, plus eight marks. James Rowbottom. I think people are starting to realize just how scrappy and tough this guy is. A goal, a behind, 23 disposals, and 13 tackles. 
Nick Blakey a goal, 21 disposals and 11 marks. Bear with me here because we've still got a couple more. Tom Papley, two goals and 19 disposals. Sam Reed, three goals behind, 18 disposals. Isaac Heaney, three goals, two behind, 17 disposals. Patty McCartan, nine intercepts. Robbie Fox has really come along the last few weeks. He had eight intercepts, and as a team, the Swans were at 53.6% efficiency inside 50. They averaged close to 50%, but when you're allowing over 50, that's a pretty bad referendum on the way the Giants defended. Not much to write or podcast home or anywhere, especially because most of our audience is abroad. I think it's about two to one Australian versus American listeners with some other nations scattered in there. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are. Let us know if you're from somewhere interesting. We'd love to corner the market in Azerbaijan. Josh Kelly with a behind and 25 disposals. Sam Taylor, 21 disposals, 13 intercepts and 10 marks. It's a shame that a performance like his is largely going to be lost because of the three goals that Buddy got, a couple of which definitely didn't seem like his fault and also just because the Giants shit the bed. In terms of where the Giants stand for the rest of the season, I believe you wanted them to have three good performances out of their final six, and they started well against Brisbane. They had a good half-plus against Carlton, but no full four-quarter performance. So I know you're going to be really looking for more out of them, especially this week when Mark McVay coaches against his old side. Yeah, this was just a real letdown of a showing, and it's not the sort of game that's going to help McVay's chances of getting that job full-time. Giants will definitely impact the finals race still, with their final two games being the Bulldogs at Marble and hosting Fremantle in Canberra. Hopefully, we'll be talking about them in a more positive light. Another week, another questioning of the AFL's standalone game decision on Saturday. The scoreline of St. Kilda and Hawthorne makes it seem a lot more interesting and competitive than it actually was. St. Kilda ended up winning by 12, 10, 15, 75 to Hawthorne, 9, 9, 63. A lot of excitement going into this one. You had Dan and Sam Butler playing each other. The return of Chankwok Jaff, Dan Hanabry finally being in for the first time this season. A really good tagger as of late going each way. Finn McGinnis went to Jack Sinclair, Marcus Windhager to Jai Newcomb, but I ended up being most impressed in this game by Rowan Marshall. That was somewhat of a surprise to me because with Patty Ryder being out, Marshall was the man really taking all the ruck contests. Jared Leonard did take a few of them, but come on, it was Marshall, especially against Ben McAvoy. And he got meaningful possessions off those involved in over a third of their scores, a strong interceptor out of those contests. And he's one of the rarer forward third players where we really say he's the guy who makes good things happen when he gets the ball. He had an impact right away, smothering a kick from Ben McAvoy and quickly getting a ball into the 50 for Mason Wood for the first goal of the game. The highlight of the first quarter, though, was Dan Hanabry getting a goal. He had a bounce go his way. Saints really flexed their muscles in terms of traffic, not necessarily scoreboard impact, with an eight-score second quarter while they limited Hawthorne to just three points. However, it was only 3-5 out of that quarter when they missed a couple easy shots. Tim Membry actually missing a few easy ones in the first half. They ended up getting the job done, but barely so. Not a lot of it was pretty. I actually 
ended up writing in the notes for this one, hey, an actual highlight when Sev Ross had a bending goal to make it 37 to 10 late in the second quarter. The Saints were dominating in clearances. At that point, clearances in the second quarter were 12-3, and that stat, more than any other, was indicative of the way the quarter was going. There wasn't really a ton that kept me glued to this game, honestly. It was cool to see Dan Hanbury get in there and play so well. Nothing about this game, though, was just that aesthetically pleasing, other than Marshall's dominance and a few runs from Windhager. St. Kilda led by 42 before a late push by Hawthorne to get that final margin down to 12. The Saints weren't in a position where they were likely going to be able to do much with percentage to begin with. Now that's really out of the question. But I will say, after looking at some of the ladder projectors and stuff, that maybe they would have had a shot too if they could have fattened up in this game. I think it would have been possible. Now it's definitely not. And I think their bigger concern should be that they just... Even though, yeah, they obviously took their foot off the gas some, they gave up a five-goal fourth quarter, and heading to Geelong next week, if they play a quarter like that, they're in trouble. little foreshadowing, we'll be talking about Geelong in big quarters not long from now, but we do have some stats and things to go through first. I do want to mention, before we get into those actual numbers, individual performers that I liked in this game. Seb Ross was just all over... Tim Membry makes shit happen offensively. Didn't necessarily kick the most accurately, but had meaningful possessions when he wasn't going for goal. And Rowan Marshall, like you mentioned, you know, he kind of just said, fuck it, I'm going to beat Patty Ryder while also playing my role. I say pen in the three votes to Rowan Marshall already. 30 disposals, 10 intercepts, 9 marks, 9 score involvements, 7 clearances, 7 tackles, 465 meters, and he probably cleaned the town's water supply too. A 31-disposal game out of Jack Steele didn't lead from way out in front like he did last week, but wasn't required. Brad Crouch kicking 1-1 from 30 disposals, 11 tackles, 9 clearances and 9 score involvements. Dan Hanabry had a goal on 27 disposals. The aforementioned Seb Ross 1-1 from 26 and 7 marks. Ben Patton is someone who's been quietly improving this year. 25 disposals. 13 intercepts. Jackson Clare with 24 disposals and six tackles. Admirable job done on him by Finn McGinnis, but you aren't going to stop Sinclair from having anything under 20 possessions in all likelihood. Ben Long providing good energy once again. Was glad to see him in the main 22. He had nine tackles. In addition to Josh Morris being subbed off, Mitch Lewis seemed to hurt his knee at one point in the second half, but obviously couldn't be subbed out at that point. Not a very good game overall for the Hawks. James Sicily had nine intercepts, but I didn't think he played all that well. Will Day also had nine intercepts. Tom Mitchell, 31 disposals and nine marks. Josh Ward, 26 disposals. But the three guys who really made an impact, in my eyes, Finn McGinnis, in addition to his tagging role, had 22 disposals and seven tackles. Dylan Moore, a goal of behind, 21 disposals, eight marks, seven score involvements, and seven tackles. I just love how they've managed to get him involved outside of that role in the forward 50 and outside of the first half. And Jai Newcomb, another good showing. Two goals, 21 disposals, seven score involvements. And that was working through Windhager's tag. Windhager having more of a defensive role in this one. Not a huge possession getter, but another strong game for his continued development. Nothing about this game, though, convinces me of anything new about either of these teams. And in terms of St. Kilda... That ain't all that great. They do not feel like they belong in the eight right now. 
you know those clickbait headlines you see, like those links at the bottom of an article that always go to like some other site, you know, things like eat this, never diet again. Well, I've got one from this round. Other coaches hate him. See how Chris Scott fixed the Geelong Cats with one simple trick. The Cats did indeed make it 10 wins in a row and completed a season sweep of the Western Bulldogs. Now, during this streak and throughout this season, the Cats have had games where they've really been bailed out by one big quarter. But other than, I guess, the Collingwood game in round three, I don't think they've had one where they've rebounded successfully from such an awful start like this, trailing by as much as 26. They trailed by 11 at the half and would have been closer if not for a couple of really bad misses. You know, you had that really bad Jeremy Cameron dribble kick attempt a couple weeks ago. I think that was the Port Adelaide game. This time they had numbers. They had tons of open space and a bad handball from Patrick Dangerfield led to a bad dribble kick attempt from Tom Hawkins that missed wide, meaning they only cut the lead to 19. Still got into the half down 11 and then played maybe their best quarter of the entire season. Maybe the best quarter they've played in years. That fourth quarter against Collingwood was pretty great. This might have been better. They outscored the Bulldogs 50-3, and it was really a complete team effort. You had so many different players get involved. Ryan Myers had probably his best game of the year. He set up Tom Hawkins for a goal, then kicked one of his own from the right boundary off of a nice sequence that involved Isaac Smith, Brad Close, and Tyson Stengel. Close was added again, this time more offensively rather than chasing guys down and tackling them. But the biggest adjustment that put the Cats in position to win this game involved a former steeplechaser. I wonder who that could be. Mark Blitzoff started the game kind of in a defensive role, following Marcus Bonapelli around. But with Reese Stanley out, unfortunately, John Segler just couldn't quite cut it in the ruck. He was getting overwhelmed pretty regularly by Tim English, not just in the circle, but all over the ground. And... It's hard to blame Segler for that, considering it's his first game after ramping up from a lot of injury setbacks, and then that game comes against one of the best Brockman in the league. And rather than play the Blitzovs-Bottom-Pelly matchup, Blitzovs moved to the center circle, took most of the hitouts, and really the whole team fed off it. It was one simple change, and it sparked successful play everywhere else. And I think if there's a team you're going to have success off of one simple change against, it's going to be the Bulldogs because, you know, as good as Luke Beveridge is for post-game quotes, he's not so great with in-game adjustments. He may not be that great of a flat-out coach to begin with. We've been saying for weeks now that the Bulldogs have really gotten by a lot of the time on raw talent. Looking back at what I saw from this game again, I was focusing on the other game of this window. I definitely thought that about their first quarter. By the time it was all said and done, the Cats led 80-44, to and I fired off a tweet that actually kind of blew up, saying that I stood up and gave a standing ovation. I actually did. That was not an exaggeration at all. The Bulldogs actually did make a nice little push to start the fourth quarter, but couldn't get any goals out of it, as both Cody Waitman and Josh Dunkley, who had good games other than this, kicked behinds. You know, if they get those, all of a sudden it's back to a four-goal game instead of a 34-point margin, and then probably still out of reach, but they would have had something of a shot. Instead, the Cats ended up getting the first goal of the quarter as Brian Myers made a great running tap to Dangerfield, who handballed to Cameron, and that was really it, though. Dunkley did take a great mark in the final minutes over Jack Henry that will 
talk about more later. The point is, despite losing the first quarter badly, going down 26-0 and trailing at the siren 27-8, getting outscored 22-14 in the fourth quarter and only winning the second quarter by eight, that third quarter was so good that the rest of the game was irrelevant. And I think that's a great thing for the Cats because I keep saying they still haven't really pieced it all together. In this game, they pieced everything together for one quarter. I do want to note, once again, a well-rested Patrick Dangerfield changes everything. And he runs so well, regardless of age. And you saw that in this game. The only negatives, really, Sagler's not up to speed yet. Understandable. Gary Rowan's not really up to speed either. He missed a lot of time this year as well. He's going to miss next week. He was subbed out late when he entered concussion protocols. That's how Brandon Parfit got in. Would think he'll be back in in full next week. Early on, at least, Ryan Gardner did a great job on Jeremy Cameron, who was able to adapt some as the game went on, but Gardner made sure he really couldn't quite take over, so credit to him there. That is a 1v1 that actually kind of went the Bulldogs' way. The only other negative I see for the Cats, really, they whiff on a lot of tackles. It's like bad missed tackles, like you press the dive button on video game when you were nowhere near the man or something like that, and... It's surprising that they're so good defensively, yet they have this persistent issue. For the Bulldogs, I actually did notice a couple of positives before they got completely flattened as a team in the third. Buku Thomas is really comfortable in that defensive role. He finished with seven intercepts. And while Jamari Hagen didn't have a huge game for himself, his ability to create space for the other forwards is insane. And there's some instinct there that he just can't teach. And you can tell he's really in sync with the other forwards right now. It's just that third quarter, they weren't really ever forward. With this win, Joel Selwood becomes the winningest captain of all time. That is his 160th win as captain. It was his 350th game overall. And it was kind of a fitting milestone game for him where at times, Cash just kind of willed their way through it. Kind of a representation of where Selwood is at this stage of his career. Maybe not the player he once was, but still able to come through in key moments. And there were a lot of key moments in that third quarter. Patrick Dangerfield finished with a goal, 26 disposals, 7 clearances. He gained 537 meters. Isaac Smith, a goal, 26 disposals, 9 score involvements, 8 marks, 499 meters. Cam Guthrie, 2 goals, 2 behinds, 25 disposals, 6 clearances. Mitch Duncan, 23 disposals and 9 marks. Tom Stewart, 22 disposals, 10 marks, 7 intercepts, 490 meters gained. Brad Close, a goal, three behind, so not his best game kicking, but still, 19 disposals, eight score involvements, seven tackles, and two assists. Thank you for changing my life. That was a very good meme from you, by the way. I'm proud of that one. Jeremy Cameron, two goals behind, 18 disposals, and eight marks. But again, Ryan Gardner actually did pretty well on him. Stats a note for the Bulldogs. Tom Liberatore, my God, he's greasy. 28 disposals and 9 clearances. Ed Richards stood up the strongest in the back half for him with 28 disposals, 11 marks, and 456 meters gained. Bailey Dale gained the most ground for him, 615 meters, 25 disposals, 7 marks. Josh Dunkley with 25 disposals as well, kicking 2-1, also at 6 tackles. A lot of decent, if not good, defensive performances from the Bulldogs. Ryan Garner joined Buku Kamis on 7 intercepts, and I want to add... That, again, Buku Kamis is a friend of Cal basketball player Kwani Kwani, who I've gotten the chance to talk to a few times. So anytime I see Buku doing well, I'm really happy for that. And it's great seeing him almost be able to be that Griffin Loke type, where he can just kind of rotate between the 50s at will. 
Alex Keith was dropped for this game, and I saw that as a big vote of confidence in Kamas' defensive abilities. Offensively, though, they might have wanted him at times because the Bulldogs were held to just 42.2% disposal efficiency inside 50, and I'm surprised I didn't see more of Kamas going as sort of a spare forward at times. I think Kamas is better off defensively, but you could throw him into an offensive role as needed, and versatility never hurts. Despite them sitting in 10th, I still kind of like where the Bulldogs are sitting. They've got a downward-trending Fremantle in a big, almost fully standalone game this coming Saturday. Then they finish with the Giants and Hawks. So the 8 is still more than doable for them. And they've got enough consistent performers that I don't doubt that they'll be able to put up at least competitive efforts so that the percentage doesn't suffer even with losses. Now watch the Dockers run them over. My one issue with the Dogs is that lack of in-game adjustment. And that's why I was saying Fremantle could be able to run them over if they adjust the right way. Don't forget, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. Admittedly, we were a little bit less active in real time this round because we were busy doing family birthday stuff. Our grandma turned 85 about a month ago, and this was the opportunity to get everyone together for stuff was the first time a lot of our extended family had come over from other time zones in four years. But normally you'll see more from us there. You'll definitely see more from us over the final three rounds. I am personally available on Twitter at Castle Media. My son is available on Instagram at CathNameGrian. I am available at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. Also just want to take the time to thank those of you who have begun to support us. There is a link for that at the bottom of the episode descriptions. And also to thank Anchor and all the other platforms where you can hear us and are presently doing so. One of the reasons the aid is still very much attainable for the Bulldogs is because of a team that looked like they were secure, looked like they were going to be in the conversation for a top four spot just a couple weeks ago, dropping four points that I think most projections would have had them taking. Yeah, the Blues did not fare well for themselves, especially in the second half of Eddie Betts Cup Part 2. And the Crows ended up with another one of those home wins that you didn't necessarily expect, but you may have had on your radar. I didn't necessarily expect it, but the thought was at least in the back of my head going, just like, could this be one of those weird Adelaide Oval type games? And I guess it was. Carlton just didn't ever look settled in this game Even when they led after the first quarter, Adelaide had two more scoring shots, Adelaide kicking 2-4 to Carlton's 3-1, and the Crows dominated early contested and clearance numbers. I expected this to kind of be a weird game for Carlton because of everything they were going through with the selection of their talls. Jack Silvani ended up being omitted as Mark Pitnett came back in, and I just wasn't sure if that was the, the right move going in. Silvani had been trending downward, but I hadn't been as impressed with Tom DeConing in open field play as of late. I didn't like how the Crows were blasting the ball into the forward 50, but they were maneuvering well through contests. And I expected after that first quarter that they were going to really make their case for the win in the middle quarters when Darcy Fogarty pulled down a big mark over Mitch McGovern and kicked to make it a three-point game just before the quarter time siren. I really thought they were going to have a strong second quarter, and they didn't have a huge impact on the scoreboard, but at halftime, they were in front by four. A lot of solid performers there. Ned McHenry with a couple really solid plays. A handball over the top for Lachlan Murphy was one play I noticed, and then a big bump on Adam Chera 
that started a sequence that ended with Ben Keyes getting his first of three goals. Keyes, another very strong performer in this one, wasn't in the center like he had typically been, but was in the half forward line doing sort of a defensive flanking job against Adam Saad. And it fit him really well. It also meant Mitchell Hinge did more work around stoppages. And that was also another good move. So a good stroke of judgment there by Matthew Nix and his staff. And something now that I wonder why wasn't it done earlier. While the Crows took control of the second quarter, the Blues suffered a couple key injuries. Corey, no relation to Sam Durden, injured his shoulder. That allowed Jack Savine to come in as the sub. Shortly after Durden got injured, Nick Newman got a nasty cut to his knee. He ended up being confirmed out for the second half, so the Blues were a man down there. Starting the second half, Carlton were giving up a lot of turnovers from their kicking. That definitely hindered some of their progress. Inaccurate kicking when they were in front of goal as well. Just 1-4 in the third quarter, while the Crows managed 3-3. You know, nothing sparkling, but more than getting the job done. Stretching out the lead to two and a half goals by three-quarter time. Keys continued his solid work, got another goal. Fogarty continuing his strong work. I noticed that Fogarty performing well allowed Taylor Walker to play more freely because for so long for the Crows, Tex has mostly been a marking target in the forward 50, but Fogarty taking some of that role meant that Walker was able to do more running work and more handballing work, and he did really well in a lot of those cases. Late in the third, Carlton had a couple missed opportunities. Tom DeConan gave up a free kick in Carlton's offensive goal square, and Matthew Kennedy missed from close range. Matthew Cottrell got a couple goals back for Carlton in the fourth quarter, but by then it was too little too late. Adelaide forcing, capitalizing on a couple more turnovers. Fogarty with a highlight goal to complement the mark that he had had with kind of a double don't argue against Lockie O'Brien and Adam Chera. Additionally, Matthew Kennedy was concussed late, so that was three Carlton injuries from this game, which hinders their case for the finals even more. Meanwhile, the Crows were able to close out the game strongly and ended up 29-point winners, 12-12-84 to the Blues, 8-7-55. A whole lot of strong performers for them in this one. Again, Keys being moved to half forward and getting that job on Adam Saad was a very good assignment from him. First time I'd really noticed solid defensive work for him this season. There's the versatility and running ability of guys like Jordan Dawson. Chase Jones with a really solid game as well, maybe his best of the year. And a couple unsurprising leaders in Rory Laird and Brody Smith. Even I'll get to the stats in a second, but Brody Smith's stats weren't just big, they were functional. You know, it's not like Aaron Hall gaining the meters gained record on a day where he was so turnover prone. No, Smith was just that good and that important to this effort from the Crows. Stats of note for the victorious Crows. Jordan Dawson, 25 disposals, 658 meters gained. Chase Jones quietly improving, 23 disposals and 455 meters gained. Remember, before the bye, he looked really bad against Geelong. Ned McHenry, a goal, 21 disposals. Taylor Walker and Ben Keyes, each with three goals behind and 21 disposals. Josh Worrell playing just his second career game, 10 intercepts. Came into the side for an injured Tom Dude and definitely made his case to stay. Been a very long time since the Crows had had as solid an effort as they had this game from their back line, and Worrell was the key piece for that. Rory Laird, a huge game, 32 disposals, 12 tackles, 8 clearances, 8 score involvements, 592 meters game, but the real star... Brody Smith with a behind, 37 disposals, 
13 intercepts, 8 marks, and 1,019 meters gained. Had he gained two fewer meters, could have made some sort of tribute to, uh, I think it's Gucci Mane's record label? Burr. While Smith and other big stack getters for the Crows definitely had functional and score-involved games that led to those big numbers, it felt like Carlton's biggest stats were just accumulatory efforts. Patrick Cripps with 41 disposals, 13 clearances, 6 tackles, and 596 meters. Sam Walsh behind, 40 disposals, 6 clearances, and 444 meters. Been a while since both of them had had big statistical games together, though. Sam Doherty, 32 disposals, 10 marks, 706 meters. Adam Saad with 26 disposals, 9 intercepts, 7 marks, but Ben Keyes limited him to 388 meters gained. Considering the monstrous efforts that he's had a lot of the season, that's just another piece of evidence for Keyes having a really solid performance. Adam Cherub with 24 disposals, 9 tackles, and 7 marks. I'd say it was a more visible effort for him in that sort of defensive midfield role. Though, the thing I remember him for, as I mentioned earlier, was him getting bumped by Ned McHenry. Jacob Wietering with 10 intercepts. The team stats, though, really stood out to me in this one more than any individual statistic for Carlton. Because for just the second time this year, they lost the contested possessions. It was Adelaide plus 14 in that. And Carlton also committed 12 more turnovers, 89 to Adelaide's 77. Now, I will note, the Crows didn't consistently make enough out of their clearances and contested possessions, and they had more than enough chances to put away the game before the fourth quarter, but they got the job done, and I do believe they did win this game more than Carlton lost it. Carlton definitely helped their case in losing it, but they were hampered by a couple injuries, and the Crows' staff made the right calls in a couple of key situations, and those key players performed well. As for the Blues, they're going to need to address the lack of production from their small forwards. Out of the mix of the Talls, Pitnett, Tom DeConing, Silvani, one of those three needs to have more time up there with Charlie Curnow and Harry McKay, maybe take some heat off of them as a marking target at times. But it's not like they're going to be under a huge amount of stress to adjust quickly. They've only got a trip to the Gaba in what I guess is now the Michael Voss Cup next week. And then Melbourne and Collingwood to finish things off. No big. Nothing special, as those annoying McCain Foods commercials say. As for the Crows, solid step in the right direction for them. And they could definitely still win out, though it is Port Adelaide's home showdown in round 23. And the home team tends to lift at least a bit for that. But at the Eagles and then hosting North, they should definitely pick up at least two more wins this year. Two out of three games on Sunday were close contests in very different ways. The first of those was the Coast Clash between the Suns and the Eagles, and uh, I guess that means it's my turn. Ethan was excited about this game, though, and was happy to watch a decent amount of it before Richmond and Brisbane began because of one Mac Andrew making his debut. He didn't do a ton, finished with just nine disposals, but I think he's one of the most fascinating people to ever play any sport. Six foot seven, 163 pounds, He's one of the tallest, skinniest people I've ever seen, and whether or not he ends up being a good player, I just want to watch him, because there aren't a lot of people built like him. Eagles got off to a decent start. It was clear that Nick Nanui and Tim Kelly spent some time working on center bounces and just getting the taps to the right places, and Nanui has been criticized for not getting hitouts consistently to advantage, but he was able to do so early on. Eagles got the first couple goals courtesy of Jax, Darling, and Redden. First time we've seen Redden in that capacity in a bit. 
Suns were just playing really loose defense in the beginning, and they corralled themselves pretty quickly because they didn't end up allowing another goal for the quarter while kicking five themselves. Solid center clearance work. Bobby Rachel kicking strongly. No surprises there. Isaac Rankin choosing his battles really wisely, knowing when to be inventive and knowing when to just play it straight, as well as other solid performances in a five-goal second quarter for the Suns. couple good moments from Jeremy Sharp creating one kick, knowing he had the numbers with him to send the team away, and then getting rewarded with a goal himself. Eagles were able to get one back near the end of the first half, finally getting their pressure right. Didn't think much of their chances, though, going to the half down 30, 65 to 35, but they looked like a different team in the second half. They started controlling the contest, continuing with their pressure. They were making the most of Gold Coast turnovers and leaving the Suns' defense a bit exposed. Only cut into the lead a little bit in the third quarter. Still a 25-point deficit for the Eagles heading into the last. Chol was able to get an important goal back for the Suns right before the three-quarter time siren with a big leaping mark against Andrew Gaff that somehow wasn't nominated for Mark of the Week. After Chol jumped over Tom Barris and kicked his fourth goal, it was a 31-point game, 92-61. Even with the time left, I thought, all right, that's probably it already. And then the Eagles woke the fuck up again. Jack Darling getting two of the next three goals as West Coast kicked five in a row. Darling actually ended up kicking six, tying his career best. Would not have expected that out of him at any point this year. Eagles were able to create goals from the defensive half. Shannon Hearn pushing forward at times was a good move. Hearn, by the way, said that he will play on next year. And I'm really happy for that. Still an excellent leader and a pinpoint kick from anywhere on the ground. After Hugh Dixon had a clever back heel to get the ball toward Jack Redden for a soccer, it was a two-point game with eight and a half minutes to go. But the Eagles never were able to get ahead. Jake Waterman missing everything after a really good passage of play was a real momentum killer. And then there was one questionable piece of umpiring that really stuck with me. Eagles fans were mad about a number of calls, but the only one that I really hold on to looking back is wondering how a dangerous tackle can be called before the tackle is even taken to ground because Willie Rioli was called for one on David Swallow. It looked like a good solid American football tackle to me where he just put Swallow on his ass, but maybe shows you how little I know, but I just don't get how you can make that call so quickly Cho ended up getting his career-high fifth goal in his 50th career game, and I thought that was the dagger with just under three minutes to go. Eagles got one back in the final minute, thanks to Jake Waterman. He finally got his goal then, but Matt Rowell had a ground-level win in clearance. Tuke Miller, who was a clearance monster himself in this game, was able to get the ball toward Malcolm Rosas Jr. Welcome back to Mal. Love watching him. He had a couple goals, including a running finish that truly was the dagger, Jermaine Jones got one back on the final siren. Was happy to see him get one with the solid offensive game he had had from halfback. I leave this game as an Eagles fan with a lot of positives. The loss does sting. Gold Coast 16-11-107, defeating West Coast 16-8-104. But outside the first quarter, this is the kind of effort that I wanted to see from them. It's a matter, though, of getting that first quarter working because had they been able to do so... I could be talking very differently about this game. Not going to take away anything from the Suns, though. After putting three good quarters together last week, they put together enough of a game this week to get the job done. Isaac Rankin with 
a very solid game after looking off and just struggling against Brandon Starcevich in the Q clash. We'll know that he was coming back from COVID in that game and players like Tuke Miller and Mavi Rochol playing to the very best of their ability. I thought it wasn't so much the first quarter that was so bad as kind of the late first quarter, early second quarter agglomeration. Admittedly, after the margin had gotten out towards 30, you know, I've been watching this game delayed as, again, busy weekend family stuff. But when it looked like the Suns were pulling away, I kind of fast forwarded through it. And then the game didn't get interesting until the following game between the Lions and Tigers had already started. So only so much I could get out of this one. Might go back and watch it at some point, but because neither of these teams are really in the finals conversation, I could go back and watch this like after the season if I want to get more of a read on both these teams. And this might be one of those games that fits that category well. I think you could really look at both of the Coast Clashes this year and gain some valuable intel on both teams because you saw very different looks from them between each of those games with who's emerged for the Suns at VFL level plus the injuries that they've had and the Eagles having had a bunch of COVID outs that first week as well. And and for a couple of teams that are going to need to continue building to potentially for the Suns crack V8 soon and for the Eagles make their way toward that in the next couple of years, these are the kind of games that could really propel you forward. For the Suns, another monster game for Tuke Miller, who now sits second on the AFL website in the Brownlow Predictor. And first in the coaches' votes. He finished with a behind 31 disposals, a career-high 15 clearances, an octopus and 591 meters gained. For those of you new listeners, it's an octopus because it's 10 tackles, but I'm crashed. Noah Anderson, a goal, 29 disposals, 9 score involvement, 6 clearances. David Swallow, 22 disposals, 9 tackles, 7 clearances. Sam Collins, 9 intercepts. And Nick Holman, 8 tackles. The sequences where it looked like the Suns were pulling away in the second quarter from the, you know, kind of half-assed watching I did, Holman was really prominent in those. He was one of the guys who really helped them gain the separation that ended up proving to be enough for them to win this game. Holman also had a goal in the first quarter and set up a couple important plays in the fourth to seal things. For the Eagles, Tim Kelly couldn't have gone much lower than where he was last week. I don't know how much of an injury he was carrying. I don't know how much of it was just a good tag from Marcus Windhager, but had a much more involved effort in this game, involved partially because 10 score involvements on a 28th disposal effort in which he gained 607 meters. Shannon Hearn with 26 disposals. Andrew Gaff in his 250th game, 23 disposals and 11 marks, though, wasn't the most accurate kick. And one of the rare big milestone players that didn't get a goal in that big game. Tom Barris, looking like a potential All-Australian defender for a number of years to come. 19 disposals, 11 marks, and 6 intercepts. In terms of scoring, was very happy that Jack Redden got two goals. Hadn't noticed him positively in terms of forward for a while. 23 disposals and 9 score involvements. And Jack Darling, 6 goals straight on 8 marks. Took a while for him to get into good form this year. Obviously had a delayed start to the preseason because of his vaccine hesitancy. But he's looking like he's still got at least a few good years left in him. And hopefully having a full preseason going into 2023 will serve him well. Also want to note that Luke Shuey had another solid game on the ball. Didn't show up on the stat sheet, but the captain was getting into possessions and sequences that mattered. The one last thing I will note for the Eagles is that Kelly and Barris aside, the top performers were from the older part of the list. 
Now, of course, they have been without Oscar Allen this year, no Campbell Chesser, but hopefully the older players' solid efforts will be joined by some better showings from the younger group. Kind of everyone from Liam Ryan and younger. Hopefully Greg Clark keeps getting selected. Hopefully we see more out of Brady Hoff because those are the guys that have the potential to propel the Eagles into a positive next chapter. The big game Sunday, you can call it one of two things. You can call it the rumble in the jungle or the battle for Detroit because Tigers and Lions. We knew that something had to give. Either Richmond would stop finding a way to lose games or the Lions would finally win one at the G. And admittedly, I didn't know what happened in real time. I fell asleep pretty early in this one. Again, very busy long weekend. Good problem to have, but would I have liked to see this game live? Yes. That said, it was kind of fun to watch it knowing the outcome and kind of figuring how everything came together. I like doing that from time to time. And the Tigers ended up erasing a 42-point deficit, storming back to beat the Lions, taking the lead for good on a behind with a minute 19 left when a shot by Jack Graham hit the post. Frankly, at that point, it seemed like this game had been Richmond's to lose for a while because they had just had so much momentum generated from late in the third quarter on to the early stages of the fourth. And then they got a goal with 13 seconds left from Tom Lynch to officially seal it. So your final, Richmond 15-14-104, defeating Brisbane 14-13-97. The Lions led this game 37-3. They led this game 70-28 midway through the second quarter. At halftime, it was 72-36. They were straight doubling them up. And then the second half was really all Richmond. This became one of the most compelling games of the year. It sure sounded like a lot more than 40,000 at the MCG, the way this one wound down. Tigers took their first lead of the entire game with a little under 10 minutes left on a Daniel Rioli goal, a running kick from just outside 50. That made it 96 to 95. The Lions never led again, despite a couple of really good opportunities that led to really bad misses, such as a Mitch Robinson miss from only 20 meters out with five and a half to go. Charlie Cameron missed to the right with 248 left. That tied it at 97. And yeah, then the Graham behind and Lynch goal finished this one off. But it was really a few specific players that stepped up for the Tigers in this one. I thought Morris Rioli Jr. did a great job in the injury sub role. Dylan Grimes suffered a hamstring injury. They took basically as little time as possible to officially make the sub. And Morris came in and was really that sort of spark plug you look for in that role. Obviously, you don't want to lose Dylan Grimes. And it wasn't a like-for-like replacement either, but... It worked out pretty nicely. Daniel Rioli really stepped up in the second half after a pretty quiet first two quarters. And Shea Bolton, you know, when a forward kicks 2-5, it's hard for them to have an effective game. But Bolton did that. He made himself a factor all over the ground. Noah Cumberland earned the Rising Star nominee with a five-goal performance. Speaking of young guys, Tyler Sonsi looked good. And the Tigers pretty much just saved their season. They do sit in ninth once again. They've been in that spot a lot this year, but with their remaining three games being against Port, Hawthorne, and Essendon, they're in a spot now. I've gone through and done my ladder predictor stuff. I think even if they lose to Port, they should be in position to make the finals. I had this game on while I was watching Gold Coast, West Coast, and then Essendon and North Melbourne because that was how the calendar fell in terms of how we divided things up to break down, but... Went back and watched this game in full and a couple key moments that I wanted to address. 
I really thought that Trent Cotchin kicking a behind on a golden chance right before three-quarter time was something that really sunk the Tigers, was a momentum killer when they could have put it to within a goal at three-quarter time instead of being down 11. Then Huba Cluggage got the first goal of the last quarter, and I really thought they were doomed. And then Daniel Rioli started playing brilliantly again. Noah Cumberland continued playing well above his age. Unfortunately, the turning of the tide in this game does come with some controversy in terms of the score review. Wait, that wasn't a score review? Yeah, this was really bad. So at this point, Tigers led 96-95. It looked like Lincoln McCarthy had a goal after taking a Jack Ross fist to the face. It was originally called a behind. Nathan Broad, turns out, only touched it after it had crossed the line. And then all of a sudden, the review didn't matter because Noah Balta had been given a free kick in his own goal square for what was supposedly a push in the back by Oscar McInerney when he barely touched him. I still honestly think the Tigers win this game, even if that's not called, even if it ends up being a goal for Brisbane. The question, though, is why was the free kick only announced then? Why wasn't the communication clearer? Did one umpire forget that it was Brisbane that were kicking for goal and not Richmond? There are so many questions to ask. I agree, though. I still think Richmond would have found a way to win this more than Brisbane would have found a way to lose this, even though the Lions certainly did that. If you lose a game from 42 up, it's not just because the other team did everything right. I also want to mention the expected score in this one slightly favoring the Lions. And I think this is one of those games, if you played it out a hundred times, the Lions would probably win it like, I don't know, 60 of those times. The other note that also was somewhat controversial, but I didn't object to it in the moment that I don't think you did either, was the play that led to the final goal. Darcy Garner had an intercept mark in his own 50, but played on immediately. Cumberland with his biggest play of the game, No, none of his five goals were the biggest play for him. It was the smother that he had on Gardner because it allowed the ball to get to Trent Koshin, who got it to Tom Lynch. There's been debate over whether Cumberland should have had to stand on the mark, whether it warranted 50 meters. I had the impression that Gardner played on. I did too, and considering that it was about 45 seconds left, I get why he played on, but he probably should have at least taken a moment to settle himself before trying to start one last charge downfield. I mean, calling would show that you can get downfield in 20 seconds when you need to. The other note is umpire didn't even have time to tell Cumberland to stand. So, so you can't fault Cumberland for going for it. Also, he made the damn play. The Lions still are in good position to be a top four team. This definitely hurts their chances of a top two spot. I think the biggest winner out of that would probably be the Swans. Although, maybe considering what they've done, maybe somehow Collingwood could luck into that top two spot, or maybe it's not luck. Point is, the Lions probably finish in third or fourth now. They do have two home games coming up in their last three, though. Neither of them are going to be easy. Carlton next, and then and then Melbourne to close out their season. In between, they have a trip to Marvel to face a desperate Saints side. I do want to mention, before we get into the negatives for the Lions, a few individual performances. I really like Charlie Cameron's game. Cam Rayner gave away an important free kick that set up the Tigers to take their first lead of the game, but overall played a really good game. We said a few weeks ago, he looks like the player we remember watching in 2020 when we first got into this sport, and he looks more and more like that every week, and it's great to see. And Kadeen Coleman is continuing to improve as a defender every week. He's one of those guys who 
feels like no matter where the ball is, he finds a way to get involved. And he did that once again in this game. And remember, the Lions were without Daniel Rich, so Coleman had to take that big mover and big kick out of half-back roll and did so admirably once again. Wouldn't expect a small to be able to do that so well, but that's Kadeem Coleman for you. That said, the rest of the Lions defenders really didn't have very good games, not just Gardner. I think this was a down performance for Marcus Adams. It was a down performance for Harris Andrews. And really throughout the second half, they just didn't provide much resistance at all. Chris Fagan also caught a lot of criticism from Lions fans this week for going with a super tall lineup that was made even taller when Zach Bailey left with a sternum injury because that brought Darcy Ford in. And it's funny because just a week ago, we were talking about Geelong using a backup ruck as an injury sub and how it was kind of the, this is the guy we can't afford to lose. And that was because Chris Fagan had done the same a few rounds back and it worked. That was the idea here, but losing Bailey left the Lions with a super big and in turn slower lineup against a Richmond team that likes to play off the ground a lot. And pretty much every undersized Tiger was able to get involved including their sub, Morris Jr. We mentioned a lot of the best performers for Richmond already. We didn't mention Dion Prestia, though. And he's kind of just that understated but always present performer. 26 disposals, 524 meters gained. Shea Bolton, 2-5 as we mentioned earlier, but 24 disposals, 12 score involvement, 7 marks, and gained 711 meters. One of the forwards that gains the most ground throughout the AFL. Trent Cochin, two behinds, 24 disposals, eight tackles. Another good effort from Tyler Sanzi, really showing why he's already gotten the AFL call. 20 touches there. The two big goal scorers for the Tigers, Tom Lynch, 4-1 on seven marks. And rising star nominee Noah Cumberland, five straight, as well as that huge smother to set up Lynch's dagger. For the Lions, Lockie Neal, 31 disposals and eight clearances. Kadeem Coleman not only doing his role with 30 disposals and 9 intercepts, but also doing Daniel Rich's job, gaining 742 meters. Hugh McCluggage, when things were going well for the Lions, he was a big part of it. A goal, a behind, 26 disposals, 9 score involvements, and 6 clearances. Dane Zorko, 25 disposals. Jared Lyons, a behind, 21 disposals, 6 marks, and 6 tackles. Eric Hipwood, 4 goals, 3 behinds, and 6 marks. Thing is, though, looking back at this game for Brisbane, I'm wondering, as Trent Massenhelder was in his Nine Things We Learned article on the AFL website, who was that one Lions player that you would expect to rise to the occasion because they were absent in this one? Zach Bailey has done that in the past. He, of course, had those after the siren heroics round three of last year, but you can always expect a performer like that for Richmond, and I just don't know who you can turn to for Brisbane. You have these consistent performers like Neil and Coleman, but who's the guy that's going to be able to pull a Greg Jennings and put the team on his fucking back when it matters? I put a team on my fucking back, dude. Maybe a sort of spark plug like Lincoln McCarthy or Charlie Cameron, both of whom had good games, but I just haven't seen them be able to have those clutch performances. And that's something that has plagued the Lions into September as well. You wonder why they've been out in straight sets to the last three years. I also want to mention, in such a high-scoring game, it makes sense that both teams were super efficient inside 50. The Tigers, 64.6%. The Lions, 61.1%. Credit to Noah Cumberland for shaking off last week's ending, putting the Tigers in position where even if they lose at Port Adelaide this week, they'll still be in very good shape to crack the eight. I would love for this to be a matchup again in the finals. 
I feel like it would have to happen in the semifinal round. So hopefully things pan out that way. A lot of lessons to be learned for both teams heading into that one. Hopefully Zach Bailey's all right and will be able to come back this season. I know there's some kidney stuff going on with him as well that contributed to his hospitalization. And we know how sensitive kidney injuries can be considering Richmond had a pretty big one last year in the form of Dustin Martin. Oh yeah, he didn't play in this one. So imagine him being in this team as well. Last week, I ran through the least significant game of the round quickly. Let's see if you can do it in record time. No offense to Essendon, who had a few big individual performers, but really not a ton to talk about in their 48-point win over the Ruse. Take it away. This was your game to finish off the round. A couple debuts in this one. One each way. You had Callan Dawson for North and Jai Menzi for Essendon. Was impressed by both of them at times, especially... Menzi, once he came on as the sub, don't know why Essendon said, hey, yeah, let's do that again. But we got so much great publicity out of doing it with Tex Wanganin. But glad that Menzi actually got time on debut. From the beginning, Jake Stringer put his stamp on this game, scoring each of Essendon's first three goals. When he is on, fewer players are hard to stop. In terms of North Melbourne's offensive output, most of it was being gained from center clearances. They did exceptionally well on that front. 20-6 there, and you could tell that Essendon were feeling Dylan Shields' absence. Thing is, North just couldn't create enough chances for themselves inside 50. 66 points from 51 inside 50s, that's under 1.3 points per entry. Meanwhile, Essendon were averaging 1.9, though that is partly an incrimination of North Melbourne's defense. Still, you expect better scoring output from North. I think they were far too reliant on Nick Larkey and that Larkey wasn't playing his best either. There were a few questions asked, you know, what is the problem around Larkey or maybe with his specific playing? The kicks to him weren't the greatest. Maybe he was also starting his leads too early so the ball was going over his head. Definitely a kink that they need to iron out heading into next season if they want to propel themselves forward in any regard. In terms of positives for North, Luke Davies-Uniak, no surprise. I just feel like his career is going to be wasted at Arden Street at this point, though. For Essendon, a couple standout performers. James Stewart playing forward for the first time this season and fit in very well, taking some of the tall heat off of Peter Wright. You know, you can definitely make the forward line too crowded with talls. We saw that this round a bit with Brisbane. We saw it against Brisbane early in the season with Collingwood, but... Just having a second one in there did a lot of good for Peter Wright, especially when Harry Jones, who's someone on the taller side, plays a bit further back. And defensively, Brandon Zirk Thatcher did a good job, was mostly on Nick Larkey, so definitely affected Larkey's play there, though the questions on North are still very prevalent. After a little bit of a back and forth to begin the game, Essendon took control with four straight goals to end up leading by 15 at quarter time and kind of slowly built their lead up from there. No one quarter stood out. It's just, they just got the job done over an inferior team. I'm sorry, North, but they planned it straight here. Statistically for Essendon, Zach Merritt with another strong performance. 1-1 from 38 disposals, 10 score involvements, an octopus, 8 clearances, 6 marks, 688 meters. I may be inclined to give the three votes to Mason Redmond, though. Umpires may have been hard-pressed to decide between the two. Redmond with a goal, 32 disposals, 10 marks, 8 intercepts, 8 scored involvements, 607 meters gained. Love the play where he got his goal. He just realized, wait a minute, nobody's going with me as I'm running up the ground. So, uh, hey, Archie Perkins, I'll take this. 
Dyson Heppel with 28 disposals and 10 marks. I hope the past month plus will help him parlay a respectable deal to play on. Nick Hyde working well for the back as well. 24 disposals, 9 marks, 7 intercepts, 553 meters. Jaden Laverde, 23 disposals, 12 marks, 9 intercepts. Brandon Zerk Thatcher also with 9 intercepts. Looking a bit more toward the middle of the ground, you had Will Snelling with 19 disposals and 6 tackles. Sam Durham, 18 disposals and 10 marks. In terms of goal scorers, Kyle Langford, another solid performance. Amazing how much his return has helped galvanize the team. Two goals on 21 disposals, 10 marks for him. And Jake Stringer, 5-3 and also 7 tackles. Essendon's disposal efficiency was remarkable. 83.1%, partially because of cleanliness from them, partially because they were afforded a lot of good opportunities from North. Remember last week against Hawthorne, North had no resistance defensively other than Ben Mackay. The Hawks had no reason to stop bringing everyone forward because they didn't have to worry about turning it over. And Essendon's a team that can really move the ball well out of the back. And if those guys don't have to worry about turning it over, they can really just bum rush the forward 50. And they did a lot of that in this game. I did like some of Essendon's creativity at times, though, though. Again, North's ineptitude afforded them some of that creativity. There were a couple of big stat lines on the losing side. Jai Simpkin, a behind, 41 disposals, 6 clearances, 555 meters gained. Jaden Stevenson, 34 disposals, 8 intercepts, 551 meters gained. Luke Davies, Uniac, 23 disposals, 416 meters gained. Jed Anderson, a goal, 2 behinds, 20 disposals, 6 marks. And another nice game for Cam Zerhar, that's 2 in 3 weeks. Four goals on 18 disposals and seven marks. Another positive game for Jalen Stevenson in the Adams system. Obviously, a continued run of poor performances for North, even with that one win against Richmond, certainly don't help Adams' case for for retaining the job full-time. But definitely a positive in that he's figured out how to use Stevenson better than David Noble did. A couple team stats to note real quick. North committed 78 turnovers to Essendon's 62 Remarkable that Essendon committed that many from what I saw, but guess that happens when you just have that much more of the ball. And then tackles inside 50, 16 to 3 in favor of Essendon. That's another stat where you can see it as good job, Essendon, and also what the fuck North. That concludes our rundown of the nine games for this round. I think it's safe to say, even though there weren't a ton of super close games and great finishes this week compared to what we had in round 19. The results we did get made the races heading into the final three rounds really interesting. Go and have some fun doing some of those ladder predictors. Just two games separate second place all the way through seventh. I think we could see a lot of teams entering round 23 at 15 and 6, and it could create a lot of chaos where we're looking at percentage, we're looking at all kinds of possible scenarios. I really think there's going to be two separate races the race for spots two through six and the race for seventh through 10th. But just a couple weeks ago, I thought we knew who our eight were and we were just going to find out what order it was. So this whole picture could get completely thrown around again, but that's what it looks like at the moment. And I'm having a lot of fun just playing out what are all the potential outcomes. I've done the ladder predictor tool a couple times and typically the last spot comes down to percentage when I run that. So If things go as I forecast, which they probably won't, I mean, the odds of anyone getting the outcome of all 27 games right is pretty slim, but if it does, this could be a really fun down-to-the-last-moment finish. 
I was far from convinced that we had our eight a couple weeks back. I was convinced that we had seven. At this point, I'm convinced that we have six. I see no way that Fremantle is going to fall off enough to miss the eight with their favorable schedule the rest of the way. But with Carlson getting three big injuries this past round in Durden, Newman, and Kennedy, they're looking as vulnerable as ever with a very difficult schedule to the end. The Saints have been far from convincing, and we've seen what Richmond and the Bulldogs have been able to do at their best. We're going to end this episode, as we always end our recaps, with the nominees for Mark and Goal of the Week. In case you missed it, Adam Saad won Mark of the Week for round 19 with his leap over James Peatling. I thought Toby Green should have won it from that same game. Our three nominees this week, you've got Josh Dunkley over Jack Henry, Darcy Fogarty over Mitch McGovern, and Tom Lynch over Marcus Adams. Benjamin, who do you have as the winner? None of these stands out a ton to me more than the other. I think I'm going to go with Darcy Fogarty just because he got the bigger run and with it, the better height on McGovern, just really getting onto his shoulders. I'm still really surprised that Mavi Archol didn't get nominated from the mark he got over Andrew Gaff just before three-quarter time. And I would have definitely considered voting for him had he gotten the nod. I'm going Josh Dunkley. I was able to appreciate it because the game was over at that point. I thought it was just a very nice textbook, big mark, you know, Kind of get your knee into the opponent's back, get leverage. That's my pick. As for goal of the week, last round, no surprise, Josh Dacos. I think he's in line for his second car in three years. Bounced the ball to get around Sam Durham. Deep Nick Hyde, retrieved, bounced twice, scored from near the boundary. This week, you've got Noah Cumberland coming out the back of a marking contest and hitting a checkside dribbler from the right pocket. That was his fourth goal of the game. You have Darcy Fogarty shedding Lockie O'Brien's tackle then putting a don't argue on Adam Chera before finishing around the corner on the right. And then Isaac Rankin had a give and go with Tuke Miller and finished from the left-hand pocket. Who you got, Ethan? I've got Darcy Fogarty. I also want to mention he didn't just shed the Lockie O'Brien tackle. When he received the handball in the first place, Lockie Fogarty was on him and had Fogarty wrapped him up, probably just would have been no prior and ball up. That was definitely the most impressive of the three, though. Cumberland's was pretty cool. I think Rankin is a distant third here. Nothing wrong with it. You don't see too many give-and-goes at that angle, but it just wasn't anything that really caught my attention like the others. I'm also going with Fogarty. I've got him winning both this round. He always stood out to me as a player who had the potential to get nominated for both in the round, up there with guys like Toby Green. Awesome seeing a guy as tall as him get those sorts of leaps and then have that sort of Dustin Martin moment there going toward goal. It was really fun to watch. Again, with Taylor Walker on the back end of his career and maybe at the end of Adelaide already, Fogarty is going to have an increasingly important role in the years to come. And it seems like he's having more consistent performances as of late. So good for him and hopefully good for the Crows going forward. That'll do it for this episode. This, once again, was episode 50 of Americans Watching the Footy, an actual significant milestone. Only 88 to go until the spectacular. And hey, before then, we might even have a spooktacular. Not for Halloween, for some other holiday. I think it's more fun that way. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find me on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. You can find us on Twitter at Americans Funny, and you can find the real star of the show on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. We'll see you in a couple days to preview round 21. 
In the meantime, go check out some of those ladder predictor tools because just playing around with those will get you excited for these final three weeks. And it'll show that there are only a couple games that really won't matter at all. Matter at all. Matter at all. I'm not going to call you sexy, but you are stupid. Bye.